I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys give their take on whether the Suez Canal saga will cause a shift away from globalization. Plus, they'll explain why USTR's actions in response to the coup in Myanmar are an example of why it's difficult to use trade penalties as a geopolitical tool. And they'll update us on the digital services tax investigations and negotiations as the Biden administration heads into its first G7 trade ministers meeting. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys, and there's a story, obviously, we have to talk about, which is the Suez Canal and the Evergreen blocking trade there for for almost a week. Um, And I think by now, you know, if you've been paying attention to the news, you'll know how important the blockage was to global trade. About 10% of global trade goes through the canal. 20,000 vessels pass through the canal every year. Obviously, major conduit for trade between Europe and Asia. And I want to ask about kind of the big picture, but also kind of the specifics as well, right? There's the big picture story of, you know, has globalization basically gone too far? Uh, and now we're, we're seeing how one small kind of unexpected, unpredictable crisis threatens to, to create some really big and expensive issues, right? That's the big picture question. Has globalization essentially gone too far and are we prepared to deal with the vulnerabilities? The more specific question I'm also interested in taking to you guys is, you know, what are the the short shorter term implications of this, right? I was reading in the journal this morning that it might take months to unravel all of the implications of the delays, right? Because all of these ships are going to try and get into port and there are only so many port openings and it takes time to offload and reload the ships. So let's start there, the big picture question and the more immediate implications. Well, look, uh, I I think that uh, there are policy preferences being expressed in some of the commentary, but let's start with something, you know, for me, in many cases, preferences are optional, but uh, material constraints are the reality of the world. There are material constraints all over the place. There are certainly material contra- constraints in shipping and choke points uh, like a narrow canal uh, or, or the Straits of Malacca or the Straits of Hormuz are an, a known issue in global commerce. And they've been around since the Phoenicians. Well, the Suez Canal hasn't, but the idea of choke points and narrow passages uh, as something that interferes with uh, shipping. And, and of course, look, 80% of, of goods move on water. So it's a very important element to all goods trade. Uh, for me, the, the bigger uh, way to look at this is goods trade bounced back very quickly after the, the economic downturn uh, that started as shutdowns from the pandemic. Services trade, particularly uh, hospitality and restaurants and airlines and hotels, have not bounced back as fast, and that's that's why the GDP is still down. But goods trade was essentially a V-shaped recovery, and so some of the the strong demand is expressing itself through port congestion. 
we talked a few shows ago about the uh, Long Beach, Port of Long Beach in Los Angeles, vital port, deep water port to the U.S. market and the backlog. Now, there's no physical obstacle that's happening there, except a, a there is a constraint. The constraint is the number of, of operating uh, docks. This one was just an unfortunate mishap, or appears to be. Uh, it's something that happens. I mean, the Suez Canal opened, what, 1890. 1869, something like that. It's been it's been operating for a very long time. This probably happened before the fortuitous timing of a, a high tide, and then all the equipment they could muster seemed to get it freed up. But this is this sort of thing happens. This is the profession of logistics exists for these kinds of problems. So I'm not sure this is a this is something that we can evaluate in terms of has something gone too far. It was closed for about six years during the Arab-Israeli war period, and everybody survived. I mean, there, there, are, there are workarounds. Uh, they're expensive and time-consuming workarounds. You have, literally have to go around Africa. But I think what it will do, I mean, short-term, there's a blip. And we simply have to work through this and the ports will be more congested and there will be all the things that Jack talked about, um, difficulty uh, finding berths and, and uh, extra demand for unloading and so on and so forth. But eventually, you know, that all gets done. It's like the snake swallowing the, uh, the basketball. Eventually it gets digested and the blip kind of goes away. I think long term, what it does is accelerate the trend that we've talked about anyway, which is shorter supply chains and more of a focus on on resiliency. I mean, people are learning that things go wrong and it's not only, you know, ocean choke points, of which there are several that Scott mentioned. There can be an earthquake or a tsunami or a major fire. I played a simulation game once some years ago where the, the second move involved an, an, unspe- an unspecified event probably a, a military attack that closed the main Saudi oil terminal in Saudi Arabia, which in one blow at the time cut off 10% of the world's oil supply. And part of the game was to figure out what do we do next? So these things keep happening. And I think the smart supply chain managers are learning repeatedly that they need to account for them in their planning. They need to uh, build up inventory and they they need to maintain shorter uh, supply chains. We had a discussion the other day where we were talking about uh, the semiconductor shortage in the automobile sector. And uh, one of the comments that was made was that uh, Toyota had been able to avoid the shortages that other companies are, are uh, experiencing because they've been stockpiling. And coincidentally, I got a note from a, a friend of mine who works at Toyota, uh, whom I knew from my NFTC days. And I said, what was the story? He said, well, it was simple. It was a nuclear power plant disaster in uh, in Japan that reminded us we need to stock up because that disrupted a lot of commerce in Japan at the time. And so they've been uh, building inventories uh, to a greater level ever since. And as a result, they weren't caught short. So... You know, you can plan and allow for these things, but uh, you have to do that. And sometimes it takes a disaster to focus your attention. The Toyota stockpiling example is always interesting to me. I've read about it and because the Toyota production system, right, which is the kind of supply chain management uh, concept, was the first to really mainstream just-in-time production. And it's interesting that in the case of semiconductors, they had the foresight to kind of step away from something that's been company philosophy. I mean, it's interesting also that you have these kind of once-in-a-hundred-year events, the Suez incident, which is, I mean, at least in 
my relatively short lifetime can't remember uh, something like that happening in, in the canal or another waterway. And you have the Texas cold snap, which certain industries are still recovering from happening within months of each other makes you think whether preparing for kind of unpredictable or unforeseen disruptions will be the norm or whether companies rather will stick to the just-in-time model. Yeah, I think the victim will be just-in-time. This has happened before. If you recall, uh, after 9-11, we closed the border to Canada and we had for 11 days, as I recall, and there's enormous backups of of material, particularly for the automobile industry, the transits through from Windsor to Detroit. And all these companies that were depending on just-in-time deliveries from Windsor were up the creek. And I think probably the more of these things that happen, the more people think, yeah, it's a good idea. It saves a lot of money, but we probably ought to keep some inventory on hand uh, because there's going to be more weather disasters. There's going to be more crises and we need to be prepared for them if we want to maintain an even level of production. This is a moment in time when there's concerns about resilience. There's also concerns about inflation. And one of the things that globalization obviously did in the last 20 years was the increasing efficiencies that were an outcome of global production and global supply networks uh, had had been reflected in lower inflation rates for a very long period of time. What the economists call the great moderation was driven in part because of all these efficiencies as more and more uh, supply chain practices were adopted. And, and so it kept costs low. My only point is none of the unwinding that is not free for the, for the consumer at the end. And so, look, supply chain managers live and die by these things. I mean, in many cases, a disruption to a supply chain is something that the pros call Wednesday. You know, <laughs> something happens all the time. Something big happens, then there's, there's much more involved. But this is uh, the nature of our very complex world. Let's um, go a couple hundred miles to the east, to Myanmar or Burma, as the United States calls it. Obviously, there uh, was a military coup there in February, and it's turned increasingly bloody, unfortunately. And as part of the U.S. diplomatic response, USTR suspended all engagement with Burma, and that involves suspending the trade investment framework agreement, the TIFA, which was struck in 2013 and is kind of a platform for the two sides to discuss trade issues, and then also threatened that they would be booted out of the generalized system of preferences, which is a trade preference program where developing countries get to send their products into the U.S. duty-free. They were threatened to be booted out of that if and when Congress reinstates the program, which expired at the end of last year, I believe. So, you know, obviously, if you've been following GSP and, and Burma's kind of political track and their history with worker rights, they've had issues with, with GSP before. They've been kicked out and reinstated. But is this a substantive move or a symbolic move? I mean, are there long-term implications, short-term implications? What do you guys make of it? So far, I'd say it's symbolic. Uh, TIFA talks are good opportunities for discussion of mutual problems, but they don't provide any immediate uh, benefits. They just create a dialogue. The idea is if they're 
if they make progress, then ultimately you can start talking about a trade agreement. But this is not an administration that is going to be pursuing a lot of trade agreements anyway. So I, I don't think that that was ever in the cards for Myanmar. Regardless, GSP has expired, as, as you pointed out, Jack. So whether they're in or out right now doesn't make a huge amount of difference. What would make a difference and what we've done before um, is if we banned imports. And we did that once uh, at the behest of Senator McConnell, who was a longtime observer of the situation in Myanmar. As I recall, the, our imports from, from uh, Myanmar are like 1.3 billion, something like that, about half of which is uh, apparel. And um, a lot of the rest is uh, gems, uh, precious uh, gems, uh, of which Myanmar seems to have quite a few. As near as I can tell, the last time when we embargoed imports uh, from Myanmar as a sanction, what we really did, in effect, was put a whole bunch of uh, poor women out of work. And that was the effect. The, the, the military wasn't drastically affected. The people that should have been targeted were not. Uh, the people who lost their jobs were uh, poor women who were sewing clothes. And that may be why uh, they've acted with some restraint here so far, because the actions we can take would probably affect uh, poor people in Myanmar more than they would affect the junta. Look, Bill, Bill's right that, and this is true with almost any sanctions regime, is political leaders like to do what feels good, but it, what feels good may not be what does good. And uh, in this case, uh, I think uh, the, the, the import the restrictions uh, of products of, of Myanmar uh, did hurt the wrong group and certainly didn't hurt the, the ruling power uh, party at the time or the, the generals weren't, weren't bothered too much by it. Uh, now, the trade is small. It's a long distance from the United States. And uh, suspending a trade and investment framework agreement is just like saying, we're just not going to meet for lunch this week. You know, it's one of these things. Uh, TIFA is best conceived of as a table. And when you want to sit down and work issues out, you've got the table there to do it. But it doesn't create any any great degree of liberalization unless the parties are willing to do something uh, at those framework agreements, uh, based on the framework agreement, I should say. Uh, so in this case, uh, I think there's a geopolitical angle as well that, that bears watching. Uh, clearly, who's, who's not upset by the United States withdrawing uh, interactions with, with Myanmar? Well, I would guess China, Russia, and Iran are pretty okay with this. And uh, they, this, this is an opportunity to continue to sort of reunite the, the Asian, Eurasian landmass uh, in the interests of those three parties. Uh, and so having us out of the picture in one more place where we weren't really in the picture much to begin with probably suits their interests. So I think the sanctions will probably be of limited effect overall just because of the small trade. But uh, the geopolitics is, is, is additional dimension that's different than it was, say, 20 years ago. I mean, that's why we, we resort to sanctions, because we can't think of anything else to do when we have the need, as Scott said, to do something. I used to go up and lobby the hill on stuff like this, not this particular country, but other countries. And and, you know, the response from the Hill, Hill staff members would be, we know this isn't going to work, but we have to do something. Uh, and my comment usually was, well, you don't have to do something stupid. Uh, why don't you try to do something smart? 
And one of the problems is there's not a lot of smart things to do, particularly in in this case. I mean, we, we've begun that the smart part of this by identifying the, the coup leaders and the military leaders and sanctioning them. Uh, but if they don't have any assets here and if they don't have any assets in banks that we can influence, it doesn't really have that big an effect on them. They probably were not going to come here anyway. So telling them that they can't come here is not uh, it does not make their lives that much more difficult. The one thing we should always try to do is multilateralize these things, you know, because uh, particularly if you're talking about coup leaders, they've got the money stashed somewhere, and it's probably not here, and it's probably not in dollars, but it might be in it might be in Swiss bank accounts. So that would be safe. It might be in China. It might be anywhere. And if we could get other countries to uh, to take the same steps, then we might be able to have more of impact. Otherwise, uh, if we take these sort of broad stroke things, we're just punishing the, the innocent people who probably didn't support the coup anyway, and, and we're making the situation worse. I do want to add uh, the situation there with, with, with China is interesting and complicated, and I don't fully understand it. But uh, it appears that the, uh, the previous government, the one, the Aung San Suu Kyi government that was uh, removed by the military, was actually developing a fairly close relationship with China. And uh, the, the commentators seem to think that the Chinese were not particularly pleased by this coup because they brought in people that in the past have been more hostile to China than uh, than friendly. So that said, I think the Chinese haven't done anything to uh, influence the course of events there. And of course, that adheres to their doctrine, which is non-interference in, in, in countries' domestic affairs, uh, which is what they... You know, they say to us every time we say anything about Xinjiang uh, or Hong Kong, they're saying that we're interfering in their domestic affairs. Uh, to be credible on that point, they have to do the same thing, on, but with respect to other people's internal affairs. So, you know, I don't expect sanctions out of them at all, but I think they're probably disappointed at the turn of events. Yeah, look, unilateral action in these kinds of uh, situations almost never works. I can only think of a few examples. The only recent example I can think of was the United Kingdom opening up uh, migration from Hong Kong, which is something that actually helped some people in Hong Kong and definitely created enough of a brain drain that it hurt the uh, mainland China's government and the people who were interfering uh, in Hong Kong's uh, independence. So uh, it's very hard to to find a, a measure that the United States would take on its own and would help the right people and, and hurt, the, hurt the wrong people. Another uh, issue where countries are struggling to work together and the United States is threatening to go it alone is uh, digital services taxation and, and our response to that and the talks that are going on internationally on the issue. So this week, USTR will be attending the first trade ministers meeting from G7 countries on the agenda, digital trade among, among other issues. Uh, and that meeting comes on the heels of USTR on Friday taking procedural steps to maintain the threat of U.S. tariffs on goods from Austria, Britain, Italy, Spain, and Turkey, all of whom are considering a digital services tax. So help me understand the, the dynamic here. I mean, why, why is USTR going into its first major international uh, get-together the administration guns blazing, essentially. Well, to be fair about it, she inherited this from the previous administration. They ran the 301 cases that determined that that uh, 
the countries in, that you listed were engaging in, in unfair actions, and they essentially ran out of time and and uh, dropped it on on uh, into Biden's lap uh, as of January twentieth. So the current people didn't initiate it, but I think she wants to retain the option. The, the United States did not impose tariffs on any of these countries, uh, including France, which is farthest down the road in terms of uh, collecting the tax. They've actually been sending bills to companies. I don't know if anybody's paid, but you know they're they're fairly far down the road. Uh, the distinction that that Ambassador Tai made was between countries like France that have implemented the tax and are preparing to collect it, uh, and countries that have uh, maybe enacted it but but postponed its effectiveness, or have proposed one and have postponed acting on it. So there, there's a line there. If you don't, if you haven't done anything that actually has a has any damage, uh, we're not going to do anything. I will say I think there is probably broad bipartisan support for what she's talking about. These are taxes that are clearly aimed at American companies, and they're aimed at large American companies, and most of them are structured in such a way that uh, the, the the government that's imposing them, most of that country's companies are are exempt. So it's it really isn't a a fair tax, and it's frustrating because there is a, there's a solution in sight. The OECD is undertaking negotiations to develop a, a global approach to this particular problem. I mean, the, the, the companies may not like it because it means they'll be, they're going to be taxed by somebody. But uh, I think sorting out uh, how, how you allocate revenue uh, from companies that, that may not have a physical presence in your country but may make a lot of money in your country is something that it's, we have to do. It's an inevitable result of, of globalization. All these countries should have waited for that process to conclude. Um, I think some of them have acted in the theory, on the theory that by acting, they'll speed up the process. I think some of them acted just because they want the money. The process itself got a shot in the arm a couple of weeks ago when uh, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen uh, indicated that she was going to drop one of the demands of the uh, of the previous administration in the negotiation, namely that that it be made, the tax be made optional for American companies, which was a non-starter from the beginning. So dropping that should move the talks along, but I think it's still going to depend on the other parties that, to the negotiation, mostly the Europeans, to acknowledge and and adjust the reality that they're aiming at American companies, and they should. Uh, if they're going to support a tax, they should support a, a broader digital service tax that affects their companies as well as ours. Bill's right about this being a carryover issue and that there is an ongoing process at the OECD. But what I'm wondering is why, why don't we just get to the head of the line and tax these companies ourselves? I mean, look, presidents are proposing another couple trillion dollars in infrastructure, including broadband, that will ultimately benefit the industry. Uh, and, you know, my view is... If these companies are going to be taxed, why not us? <laughs> well, they're, they're American companies, after all, and, and it would definitely strengthen our position at the OECD if we decided to lead the taxation parade instead of resist it. Uh, so I'm, I, I don't know why they're not considering that, but you know, given the size of the, our fiscal holes, uh, unless we just don't care about collecting taxes anymore. No sign of it so far. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's a good idea. I don't see any sign of... of uh, Republican interest in raising taxes on anybody at this point. I would have a, a different view when it comes to these companies, 
because based on the most recent six months or so, I think you would find bipartisan support for high taxation of technology platform companies uh, just based on their conduct. So this is, this is something that everybody in Washington has been upset about for some time now. I would just add, you know, I think to, to Scott's point, if anybody's going to tax these companies, it should be us because they're American companies. The co-chairs of the Congressional Digital Caucus, Susan Delbene and Darren LaHood, wrote a letter to Catherine Tai ahead of the, the G7 meeting this week. And, and they wrote that for American people to continue to benefit from digital trade, we need to ensure our trading partners are not embracing policies that threaten American ingenuity and economic competitiveness. And she goes on to say, Europe is unfairly targeting firms, uh, American firms, and, and threatening U.S. competitiveness, which I assume is an allusion to the digital services tax policies. But it's interesting that the letter doesn't say anything about how America, United States, can target our own or should target our own companies for for tax collection purposes. So I, we'll see we'll see how the the Congress ends up squaring that circle. Right, if if European countries can't tax American companies for services they provide in Europe, I mean, why should we be taxing those companies for the services that they provide Americans? Right, what gives us that right? Look, in this policy space, where the federal government's uh, not gotten started on a lot of issues. I mean, California has a privacy policy for technology, but uh, states are acting and, and certainly other governments are acting. So hey, having federal policy in this space is something that's probably a good idea. And if there's a bipartisan approach to it, um, why, um, I think that's a good idea as well. I don't know why taxation wouldn't be something you include. I think the, the message I've been sending to companies, and if any of them are listening, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, I guess, is in, in the group too. You know, take note, you're going to get taxed. It's too big a pile of money to, for governments to ignore. Uh, and governments are short of money, beginning with ours. So I think the tax is inevitable. Uh, the issue is uh, how you divide up the pie, not whether there's going to be a pie. Uh, and I think what we're facing, probably partly because we've done nothing, is the Europeans want a bigger piece of the pie than we think they deserve under the circumstances. Uh, and I think Scott's exactly right. One way to, to bring that issue to a head is for us to uh, cut out our own slice and then see what happens. But we don't seem uh, ready to do that. Well, on the positive note that the tax man is coming and <laughs> is inevitable, We'll wrap it up for this week, but we can't wrap it up. Have one more topic. Yes, we today is uh, is our producer Jack Caprell's last day uh, doing the podcast. Jack is abandoning us. To his great credit, it's uh, Windsorian. He's abandoning us for love uh, and has uh, moved to Colorado. And ultimately realized that if we ever stop being virtual, uh, it would be hard for him to commute from Denver. Uh, and so he's taken another job, which is uh, his gain, but very much our loss. I will miss him uh, personally because he's been my uh, research fellow and, and right hand for two and a half years. But the podcast will miss him as well because of the uh, depth of research that he brings to it, but also the uh, calm and dispassionate way with which he conducts the, uh, the discussion. Yeah, look, Jack, we're going to miss you. And uh, one of the things that's made your contribution so unique, I think it traces to your career, previous uh, occupation as a, as a reporter, uh, because you bring a journalist's eye to the stories and you have a, you, you have great instincts about what's going to be an interesting topic and how to 
how to sort of draw it out. We have greatly benefited from your role in in this show. And uh, Bill and I are actually going to have to do some work to try to... That too. We may have you back as a guest someday, though. We'll have to think about that. That would be fun. That would be cool. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you both. Obviously, the show is The Trade Guys, and it's uh, without without The Trade Guys, there is no show. But this is our 132nd episode, and, you know, time flies when they're having fun. This is definitely the fun part of the job that I'll, that I'll miss. But the show will go on. And uh, best wishes to you in, uh, in, in what, what I'm sure will be a bright future. All right. I'll, I'll remain a uh, loyal listener and look for next week's episode. You better. More than next week. In perpetuity. <laughs> All right. Great. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.